From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi. Preferably not when we're chewing. With apologies to Jack Kerouac, this is the first of two on-the-road episodes we recorded in Brooklyn, New York, while attending On Air Fest 2019. And if we were going to travel 700 miles to explore all things podcasting, it only makes sense that we go to brunch with two of our favorite podcasters, Ella Fetter and Annie Minoff. Ella and Annie co-host and produce Undiscovered, the podcast from WNYC's iconic radio show, Science Friday. Together, they bring a mix of experience in journalism, podcasting, and scientific research that makes the topics they're discussing as accessible and enjoyable as they are interesting. Ella, Annie, and I talked about Undiscovered, how they look for stories that haven't been told, the importance of good communication between the scientific community and the rest of us, and the paleontologist at the center of one of their most memorable episodes, who also might be the one person you'd want at your side in the event of the zombie apocalypse. So, Ella Fetter. Hey. Annie Minhoff. Hello. Welcome to With a Side of Knowledge, although I feel like because you all are based in New York, I'm like on your turf. Welcome road. to you, <laughs> Ted. We, we are on the road at uh, the Tricks Cafe in Brooklyn. We're all here for On Air Fest 2019, and I've had the opportunity to uh, chat with the two of you now, which is awesome. So thank you for making time for the show. Thanks for having us. You make a great show. It's an honor to be on it. <laughs> thank you. I will pay you for that after the episode. Um so, Undiscovered, your podcast, is described as a podcast about the left turns and lucky breaks that make science really happen. One of my favorite episodes, The Holdout, just using that as a, for instance, you came across some of these left turns in the form of, I would say, interesting theories about what killed off the dinosaurs. What was your favorite of those now of the, debunked. Oh, of the of yeah, you had that long. There was list. quite a list of of various theories that had been f- put forward before kind of the meteorite uh, took over as the dominant theory, and some of them were quite hilarious. I what? think I think the um, cataract induced blindness was definitely a top contender. That was the ophthalmologist. I think that if the specifics were that the, the, the climate changed, it got. Warmer or colder, and that caused dinosaurs to develop more cataracts. <laughs> I think that was the mechanism. Anyway, the, the upshot is they developed cataracts. They couldn't see, and they were therefore they were <laughs> and they were therefore more susceptible to injury. So yeah, falling it's off. It's a very cliffs. simple, straightforward, elegant solution, yeah. right? <laughs> well, and the funny part too was the way that people would find theories to fit their particular specialty, and you know, so of course the ophthalmologist <laughs> comes up with the cataracts and falling off cliffs theory. Um, 
Yeah. Well, so, yeah, the psychedelic one I thought was a psychiatrist, but it wasn't. Yeah. Who were some of the other ones that were very Wasn't there one that they they stopped having sex, basically? Uh, oh, yeah. That was a real one, yeah. Yeah. Was a real one wasn't Low it? Low libido. They, yeah, they, so, so that was uh, Franz Noxha, the Transylvanian baron. Oh. And he actually, so I don't think he was actually the first to come up with that one. He references it in his work. But he looked at them and, and was like, dinosaurs were very, very large. And they had some weird cartilaginous growths. There's obviously something wrong with them. This is pathological. It's a hormonal issue. We right. know hormonal issues can also affect sex drive. Therefore, maybe, maybe that's something that caused them to go extinct. No sex, yeah. no dinos. <laughs> he was an interesting guy. I recommend looking him up specifically. What was his name again? Franz Nopsha. N-O-P-S-C-A? Mm-hmm. Or C-S-A? I always spell mm-hmm. it wrong, but yeah. You'll, you'll find him. Look up Transylvanian Baron, paleontologist. So I feel like the two of you just talking there gave a great illustration of this, but I wanted to ask you, what do we miss when we think about science only in terms of the end products like theories or the people or the theories that end up in textbooks? Because it seems like we're missing a lot of richness if that's all that we all that we focus on. I think for me, like as someone who's interested in story, the story of a meteorite hit Earth um, and threw up a lot of dust and now the dinosaurs are dead. That's not like, there's no and then, and then, and then to that story. It's not a story. Um, So the idea that we used to think something and then something happened to change our minds, like, okay, now I have, now there's some rising action, now there's, you know, a climax. Like, that's something that I can tell a story about. I think that's what we're really trying to do with the show. And that's why we emphasize process. And we emphasize human beings. Uh, I think people... A lot of people don't feel very connected to science, but if they learn about the people doing the science, they're like, oh, problem solving, wanting something and then failing and then succeeding. That's something I can relate to and care about. I had the opportunity earlier this season, and I think it's someone that you all know, Sam Keen, yeah. the science writer. He was a guest earlier this season. And one of the things he told me when he's working on his books is that he looks for the compelling story first and then he trusts that the science will take care of itself once he has the compelling story is that similar to how you two go about selecting stories that you're going to cover for undiscovered or do you have a a different process we don't need the the final findings to be that interesting but we do need the scientific process to be a little bit interesting and yeah i think Hmm. We're interested in both story and science, so it's hard to say. Like, we would, I don't think we'd ever pick a story where the science was super boring. Super obvious. <laughs> but that said, I think often the way that our process works is to find out about some theory or idea that for us raises questions. Like, questions beyond just, like, what happened scientifically, but ethical questions or questions about how this finding intersects with society, what are its implications... And that's kind of the starting point, and then we'll look for the people at the center of that story who are going to help us tell it. So I think maybe we have a bit of the opposite process of Sam, although he's fantastic, so maybe maybe we should take a leaf out of his book. We're going to take yeah. I don't know how I start. Yeah, I think I do often start with a scientific idea that, that interests or excites me and makes me think bigger questions and then look for the person, but yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah. I think with Gerda, actually... And Gerda was... Uh, oh, Gerda Keller I, was yeah, the... I'm yeah, to ask you about her for sure. Yeah, the episode about uh, descent with the you know, dinosaur extinction hypothesis. I think I actually... I was looking at the aquatic ape hypothesis, 
which I decided not to touch <laughs> for the time being. And but I got interested in just you know, I mean, this is this is an evergreen topic: descent in science. I think I might have actually just been looking for descent in science and found her. Thought she was interesting as a human being. Well, I and so, then got interested in science. Like I said, I did want to ask you a little bit about her. So Gerda Keller, she's a Princeton paleontologist mm-hmm. who is at the center of the episode, the holdout, and it's really this. It's a cliche, but almost kind of a larger-than-life character at the center of this story of the theories that she has either put forth or disputed, even her personal history about getting shot when she was driving down which the road. Which found funny. Which I... What can you tell us about Gerda Keller? Because, I mean, talk oh, yeah. about a, a character that sticks with you after listening to an episode of a podcast. It's funny. It's a, yeah, she... I think you captured her really well. When I first started looking into, into that episode... Should I wait for that? Oh, no. You're, okay. We love ambient noise and all. We love it. <laughs> Someone <laughs> is making an espresso. Someone's making an espresso. Okay. Uh, when I actually first started looking at this episode, I thought I couldn't make it because of Gerda. That she, as a, as a person, might not sustain an episode, which is ridiculous in hindsight. But she is this incredibly strong, belligerent, controversial figure. But the way that she speaks is very quiet, very monotone, often understated. I mean, she'll, she'll, say, she'll talk about, she'll very casually refer to people as her enemies. I, I think some people might call them colleagues, <laughs> peers. If but, you've listened to this episode, that is so perfect, too. I it's can hear, so on brand. I can see, hear her voice talking about her enemies. Yes. I don't think I included any of the enemies bits. They didn't work with the particular flow we ended up having. But I, I, I thought people might, might not... I thought her voice might actually cause people to tune out, but I think her character shines through. Yeah, I think people have an idea of like what a good voice for radio mm-hmm. is, and that it is not Gerda. Very monotone, very much like the professor whose lecture you, you zone out in the middle of. A lot of jargon, a lot, yeah. a lot of jargon, yeah. Yeah, yeah but... Once that, I think the way that we present her in the episode, that's very much part of her character, is how, how incredibly deadpan she is while saying the most outrageous things. Well, even just that example, too, when she, after she had been shot and the priest comes to the hospital to read her last yeah, rites. Yeah, yeah. Tell the story. Tell, yeah. the story. tell the whole story? Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so the story was she was in Sydney in the, in the 60s, went out to lunch on the cliffs with a friend, and... As they were driving back to the city, they they noticed that the highway they got on is completely empty, which is really weird. Normally there are cars on a highway. Um, and then they hear shots. And they, and they see these two men chasing each other on the road, sh- shooting at each other. And Gerda thinks that this is a movie being shot. And her friend is like, there are no cameras. How, how is this a movie? She's like, I don't know. There's no other reason that a per- you know, people will be shooting each other like at each other on a highway. This makes no sense. I'm from Switzerland. We're civilized. <laughs> and then I guess, I guess it's unclear exactly what was going on, but it seems like the, a robber just robbed a bank, was being chased by a bank teller. A very, like, I, was gonna, a, I know, a very committed bank teller. Right? you think it's going to, like, oh, cop or whatever. No, no it's yeah. the bank teller. Like, all right. Yeah, employee of the month or not. <laughs> anyway, so chasing each other, bank robber is trying to make his getaway. Uh, actually, I guess Gerda's is the only possible getaway car he can grab. So he runs up to the car, holds a gun up to her, tells her to get out. But before she gets out, he shoots her, which seems like a strange sequence of events. <laughs> I'm not sure if she remembers it perfectly clearly, right. to be honest, because she was in and out of consciousness uh, and and on the verge of, of dying, was given her last rites. 
at a hospital nearby, and the priest wanted her to confess her sins before she died, and she just refused, which is very, very, very Gerda. Like she does not, she does not toe the line. She doesn't doesn't act as directed. <laughs> Will not even to just like you know to be convenient do this. No, and refuses to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's incredible. So does that have anything to do with her ideas about the extinction of the dinosaurs? No. No. <laughs> no. But we thought it did reveal something about the kind of person who would essentially like refuse to go along with, with mainstream thinking for like what, thirty years? Twenty years? Oh, uh, let's see, since nineteen eighty I think she first presented on it in nineteen eighty seven. Yeah. yeah so it's years. been a long yeah. time. Yeah. 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 So Annie, I ask you this one, since Ella got to recap that story I know. about Gerda. She found Gerda. <laughs> she gets all the Gerda stories. Sometimes it goes the other way. Like, you think you have this person that's going to be this great guest, and maybe they... I mean, Gerda is a character. Not everyone you talk to is going to be a character, because yeah. they're scientists first. They aren't necessarily people who make for great radio, make for great podcasts. And How do you, when you're interviewing, when you're sitting down to talk to someone... How do you approach trying to get the best out of them in terms of getting them to talk about their work? Because you know the work that they do is going to be interesting to people, but maybe they aren't always the most comfortable about sitting there and talking to yeah. people about it. Well, I do always like to make the point, I think often people assume that like they're scientists, they must be especially boring. I would actually make the case that most people who have any kind of specialized knowledge in anything are probably going to be pretty boring when they're telling you as a person who doesn't have that context about their stuff, so um, I always like to um, try to give scientists a little credit and say that they are not more boring than the general (laughs) expert in any field, but I think often what I'm trying to get out of an interview is different than what they think I'm trying to get, so often their goal will be to explain to me as clearly as possible what it is that they did, what it is that they found, their justifications for, you know, their reasoning, and often what I'm trying to get out of the interview is... um, how did you feel about it? Anything funny, any yeah. bit of emotion, any moment of surprise. I'm trying to ask them to take me to a place in time when they felt something. And I think I, I can try to get at that by the way that I asked the question. I could say, like, when you got that email, like, where were you? How did you feel when you opened that email and read blah, blah, blah? Sometimes they'll say, like, describe it to me like it's a movie. Like, where are you? <laughs> um, and that can help. But, yeah, it's like a different mode for people to be in. Mm-hmm. And that makes total sense. And it's easier for some people than others. No one is rewarded, like, in academia for telling you their emotional story, right? right. Like, that's, oh, yeah, like that's the journal true. does not care. Yeah. Rightly so. Right. Um, but we do. Or for telling you about how, they, how badly they screwed up along the way, which is really interesting for us, and I think for anyone interested in the scientific process, but... Uh, yeah, it doesn't get you grants. One thing I'll say also for scientists is I think there is a real desire among scientists to be understood, mm-hmm. like by the public, and to share the work that they're doing. A lot of this work is like publicly funded, you know, like right. they get that this is a story that they are trying to tell, and I don't think that's universally true for a lot of experts in different fields, so I really appreciate that. And to add to Annie's comment that they are not more boring than other experts, <laughs> just wanted to like really emphasize there are scientists who are cool, Incredibly funny, interesting, warm. No, 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 and I include <laughs> myself, like, you know, how interesting is it? for any person off the street to hear me talk about mastering a podcast, like, very un, un- interesting. Until you show up, until you, without a session. <laughs> you know, listening. So I, so I include myself in that. You two also did an episode in season two called This Headline Might Kill You, uh-huh. which, 
amazing title, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. I can't remember who came up with that one. Anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah. It was about people whose job it is to convey the results of scientific research to the general public, journalists such as the two of you, in some cases university communication folks such uh-huh. as myself, and how these people sometimes, not us, but these people <laughs> sometimes get the details wrong in an effort Ooh, to make a story more compelling, more clickable. I mean, that's a word we all know now. So, as someone, I have an anxiety disorder, and... On more than one occasion, that disorder has been fueled by a headline that I've read. So I really, I particularly appreciated that you did this episode. And so I wanted to start with Ella. I think it was your friend, David, yeah. whose experience with the story about lung cancer motivated the story. Can you tell that story of what happened there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. David is vegan. If you're vegan, you don't get... You don't get B12 naturally from your diet. You can get it from fortified foods, but basically you're at high risk of deficiency. B12 is really important. David is this like superhuman who is very diligent about everything he does, and like he wears a mouth guard at night, and he works out, and he eats you know only whole grains, and you know if he, he heard he needed B12, and so he researched the best B12, got it, started taking it every day, and then he saw this headline that in men it may cause lung cancer. And it, was not, it wasn't just, you know, fringe publications that tend to put out scare headlines. It was you know, a, lot of, a lot of really respectable scientific outlets put out this, this, this headline. I actually looked at some of these articles, and I was, I was scared, too. But whenever, whenever science journalism tells me, or health journalism tells me that something is bad for my health, at this point, I think we're all, I think we're all skeptical. Hopefully we're all skeptical. When they make any definitive pronouncement on what is or isn't good for us, I guess, True. in general. Because yeah. that, I mean, that was your finding in this particular thing, because you talked to the researcher who actually yes. did this study, and I, you don't have to go into all the details. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to go into all the details of it, but suffice to say, B12 was not giving people who didn't smoke lung cancer. Yeah, I mean, and it still needs to be explored further for people who do smoke. Ted was really clear about that. Like, we need a lot of replication before we say anything definite here. But, yeah, so what we found, what what I found in speaking to Ted was that, in fact, so you needed, basically, if his study showed that men, not women, but men who smoked, and I think you need to be current smokers. So if they quit far in the past, didn't seem like B12 did anything to them. But if they currently smoked, taking B12 at high doses increased their risk of lung cancer. Which is alarming if you do smoke. Right? Sure. Um, of course, smoking is alarming. But you don't want to do anything that's going to further increase that risk. I have to say, though, it's interesting you framed it as, as a journalist screwing up. Because I very much saw this as the relationship between the journalist and the scientist falling apart. I didn't see it as strictly, like, I looked at the study myself. I like to think I know what I'm doing. Uh, I read the abstract and it seemed very clear. I understand exactly why they reported it as they reported it. It took me a while. And I think the reason that I... It took like over two hours with Ted on the phone. Oh, and I kept screwing it up actually talking to Ted. To actually understand how this miscommunication happened. And it really did seem like one of those stories where you have two people who are trying to, like, two groups of people trying to communicate, both in great, in good faith, both with the goal of, like, help, uh, hoping that correct information gets out there and, like, utterly failing. <laughs> and, like, why does that happen? When I remember from the episode, I do remember you saying, I read the abstract, which is if 
you're trying to, as someone who works in communications, the first thing you're going to do, and I imagine if you're a researcher too, and you're trying to understand someone else's work, is you're going to go look at the abstract as opposed yeah. to reading a 30 or 40 page paper right away. And you read the abstract and it said, so clear. no, this is what it's saying. Like there is no, there is no, oh, someone got this, got this wrong. Yeah, and I, I think I mean it's I think it's it's, it's it, the, the problem was that the the researcher and us journalists were speaking slightly different languages and also were going off different assumptions. Um, and it's not an assumption. I think now I'm going to be aware of this particular assumption I'm making. You know, are they talking about a large pool, a subset of the pool? Like I'm going to start. You know, I'm always want to dig deeper. In this case, though, I think the reason that I managed to see past the abstract and like of course I would have read the whole paper but even in the paper it was a bit it, 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 it took a bit of work to figure out what was going on I think the reason that I actually kept pushing and got something different out of this than other journalists had is because I didn't want to believe it was true and I think that's often a great reason or it's a great motivator for skepticism um, it shouldn't it shouldn't inform your final product as a journalist you know you shouldn't write what you want to believe but it's it can be really handy as a tool when you're investigating well it's I think the reason you were so tenacious because honest to god I was kind of wondering it's like Ella I'm let it go (laughs) let it go I take the (laughs) fall or I started to very irregularly (laughs) yeah but no I care about David and I he needs B12 and I didn't want him to stop taking it based on you know something that might questionable health headlines yeah yeah well I think it's interesting too because I believe Ted, not me, but Ted, the researcher in the story, was he based at Ohio State, I think? Mm -hmm. As someone who works on the university communication side of things, I don't know, I mean, typically when you have a faculty member who's on your faculty who does research and you start to disseminate it, they'll typically work with someone in communications and they do kind of either a press release or even kind of a feature story that then you then hope other media pick up. And I think, I mean, it's incumbent upon us who work in communications, I know for me, whenever I've done stories like that, I always go back to the faculty member and say, did I did I get this right? Did I summarize your research correctly? Because I don't want to... I, I feel like there's a lot of... Maybe there's not a simple solution to avoiding things like this, but there's a lot of different, terrible words, stakeholders involved in the process of communicating science and thinking about how we do it and making sure it... Well, I think these kinds of mistakes are going to keep happening, though. Like, and this, this, in this case, Ted does, he, he cares about communications. He worked with the press people. I think what was missing is it did not occur to Ted how a lay person might inter- inter- misinterpret this. And it didn't occur to the, you know, the press person that they were misinterpreting it. So it was never, it was never clarified. It was a, it was a, misinter- it was a misunderstanding that no one knew was happening. Because <laughs> um, technically, everything... Everything in the press release was accurate. Mm-hmm. It just didn't mention that this didn't apply to non-smokers. Right. It was almost like the, the facts were all there, but the way that a layperson versus the way that a scientist would then make decisions based on those facts is completely different. Right. But like, but what think, does this mean for me was missing. Yeah. I think I think it's I think it's just going to have to be like a back an iterative back and forth. I think people are going to publish things that are wrong, and then people like David are going to have to freak out, and people like me are going to have to find out what went wrong. Like it's it's we're going to make mistakes. Well, it's it's what you talked about earlier too. Of I mean that is what science is. It's not always even in this case where the study itself might be what you would call clean. It it's messy. The process, the way information spreads, and I guess with the internet and with things being so much more available so much more quickly 
it gets even messier because yeah. there there's a lot more people than people who just read academic journals now having thinking about this research. Well, Ted, actually, I cut. I had you know I had a very long conversation and I, I cut it way down. But a lot of that conversation was Ted apologizing for ever writing press releases and sharing his findings with the public. <laughs> Which is, like, not the, not the thing we want to come out of this. So he's like, I don't want anyone to write about most of my work uh, until, you know, it's really solid and it's been replicated a bunch of times and we can say things for, sure, for, for certain. But I know that journalists are going to be sniffing around, finding my work, and therefore, you know, to, to stave off any, like... To, to try to preempt yeah, the misunderstanding. Yeah, to preempt the misunderstanding, I have to then, you know, put out a press release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite where Ted is at. I, I'm not never sure. share information ever. <laughs> never share information. I do, I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like, we need to have these com- communica- uh, conversations, in-depth conversations between PR people and journalists and, and scientists, but we're still going to make mistakes, and I, I guess, I hope that... When journalists and communications people put stuff out, they're really clear about how tentative it is, which doesn't make for great copy. But so it's clear to readers that uh, they shouldn't make drastic life changes based on, on based these on findings. One, based on one press yeah. release about yeah. once, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That said, Ted was very clear. He's like, maybe, you know, the drastic life choice to not smoke. You know. <laughs> maybe just go ahead and quit smoking. Yeah. yeah. The live show, I guess it wasn't a live show, but the, the presentation you did at On Air Fest about John Bure mm-hmm. and basically, a, was she 1800s? Was that right? 1700s? 1700s, late 1700s. So, a woman who we think there's a very good chance she made some significant scientific contributions. Yes. But there's not a lot of what you would consider traditional documentation yes. of those contributions. <laughs> and you talked about in your presentation how you were planning to do an episode about her and you had to make the decision to walk away from it because there wasn't enough to corroborate kind of the stories that have been handed down? We didn't feel secure enough. I mean, this is tough, right? Because, uh, so, so the presentation that we made yesterday was about this botanist, Jean Beret, active in the late 1700s, collected plants all around the world, and we know made some significant contribution to, to biology in so doing, but um, there wasn't the documentation for me to feel confident in saying, you know... She discovered the plant bougainvillea. I would love to say that, but I didn't feel like I could say it, and it got to the point where we were telling a story that was couched in so many, perhaps so many, like, one imagines it's possible that uh, it started to feel really shaky to me. You know, on our show, we fact-check pretty intensively, and there were just things that I could not fact-check. And so that really sucked. But, you know, um, that's a story that didn't work for our format and our podcast. But I really hope other people out there learn about Jeanne Beret and tell her story and all the different ways that that story can be told and more people can know about her. Well, and I, I thought you made a really good point, too, of what is a lesson today that we can take from that beyond just acknowledging someone's scientific contributions, but how we choose to talk about and explore science and what we choose to document so that people going forward it's not necessarily a a one-dimensional picture of who does science or who makes discoveries or whatever yeah 
And I think that's something that's changing like within science, but also hopefully in the way that we cover science. Like just to give you an example, so back in Jamboree's day, people would collect plant specimens and bring them home, and those plant specimens would be kept in, in plant libraries, and there would be one name on the label of the collector. Today, when you collect plants, everyone in the collecting party's name is on the specimen. Um, it's like a movie name. Yes, <laughs> you know, um, Ella and I were at the New York Botanical Garden, and um, one of the botanists there was showing us how he collects plants. And he's like, "Oh, how do you spell your names?" And we're like, "What?" And he's like, "Well, your name is going to be associated with the specimen because you were technically part of the collecting party." We're like, "Hold yeah. that! We we have contributed nothing." And this were the caterers for the collecting expedition. That's just an example of being really mindful of trying to make sure that people who do work get credit. There was an amazing story out, uh, I think Ed Young wrote it up in The Atlantic a few weeks ago, about some work that some geneticists uh, just did. They were kind of puzzled by the fact that there were no uh, women programmers who they knew of in the in the, the past of population genetics research. They're like, you know, we know a lot of programming was happening, that we know that women were the programmers at that time, so how come we don't know any of their names? And so what uh, this team of of geneticists did, this team of five undergrads went through two decades worth of genetics papers looking at the acknowledgments section, which is where, you know, your your thank yous to people like review the manuscript, like, and they found these women's names who would pop up again and again in the acknowledgments, but not as authors. And they went back and they figured out that those women were actually doing pretty crucial programming work, contributing to those studies work that would have garnered them authorship certainly today and they published this paper and they're like here are their names this is like who they were the work that they did and like I hope very much that science moves in that direction of when in doubt give credit just so we have those names for the future that's something that we keep in mind a lot when we're covering science, um, mm-hmm. whether on Undiscovered behind the scenes, yeah. or, or on Science Friday. We interview a lot of grad students because guess who's doing the work? <laughs> like, guess who's in the best position to talk about it? Grad students. And, and so, you know, we're trying to spread the credit around. Well, speaking of, of spreading the credit, I, with your own show, I, I, I'll give you the opportunity to do that because as a fellow podcaster... There's many things about your show that I can find to be jealous of. And there's, I think, some of the small details that people might overlook at times. And here I'm thinking particularly of your music and and your artwork. Those two Uh, things in particular. I'm wondering if you just tell a little bit about where... Who those, who those pieces of your show come from and what you feel they add to the show. We're so lucky with the music. Our composer is Daniel Peter Schmidt. He's yes. amazing. Everyone needs to know about him. But yeah, Daniel is actually... So he he's part of the digital team at Science Friday. He does a lot of the web work. And I was just talking to him one day. We were going to use free music from the internet. Yeah. Or not free, cheap music. Yeah. And I was just talking to him one day and he was mentioning that he does some music on the side. And I was like... This could be, I don't know how good you are, yeah. but this could be better than the $1, you know, uh, songs that we find online. Maybe you could try writing for us. And the stuff he made off the bat was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, except he's gotten even Even better, more phenomenal yeah. over time. Just better and better. He, uh, our theme song is actually from I Am Robot and Proud, but 
almost everything else except for I think one song and one yeah. episode is Daniel. Yeah. 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 So that was that was He's just so super good. super lucky. I actually heard a, a similar story with Invisibilia that their music was done by like a guy who worked in the office and was like, oh yeah, I play some piano. I on do this stuff. too. You yeah. know, like. <laughs> but there there are parts of our of, like I had one. I think the the Charles Hatfield story. I don't know if, if you heard the Kurt Vonnegut episode. But, I did. Yeah. Okay, so so at the beginning, there's a story of Charles Hatfield, uh, legendary rainmaker slash con man potentially. It seems like he might have believed he he was creating rain. Anyway, told that story. It felt kind of flat. I was thinking of reconceiving the beginning of the episode, but I'd already sent a draft to Daniel, who started working on the music, and he wrote this incredible music that just made it soar and suddenly that section worked it's a, it, he can really he's, he's saved whole chunks of episodes that you wouldn't have heard That's otherwise amazing. yeah um, and then our artwork we were super lucky to have uh, Julia Quo uh, amazing illustrator do artwork for every one of our episodes last season and she's incredible in the amount of research that she does so we would send her early drafts of mm. episodes she would a- often ask us like can you send me more information about x so i can make sure that i get this detail correct in yeah. the in the picture and it was just amazing getting these these illustrations back and like seeing the ideas in our episode so beautifully distilled in a image you're just like oh yeah oh. <laughs> and i mean this is a really nerdy ancillary benefit of it but I know whenever we have tweeted about one of your episodes and you go to embed the link it's so cool that I mean you get this beautiful piece of art that you're putting into someone's Twitter timeline it's like it's just it's it a re- click on me yeah exactly I mean it really it really does add to the presentation of the show it does absolutely I'm, I'm looking for an apartment right now I'm going to be moving and I'm just envisioning a wall of, of <laughs> undiscovered art yeah. Yeah. that's a bit too much probably <laughs> I should probably leave work at work so last question two seasons and almost 20 episodes now is there a season 3 coming there is we're currently working on it um <laughs> I always feel nervous about talking about sure. stories that are in the works because I, I, I fear that they will crumble in my hand. <laughs> like some, kind of some stories, many stories yeah. have crumbled along the way. So, uh, but yes, there is a season. Do you know first. about when it'll be released? I do not. Do not? Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. God, we really want to know. Well, <laughs> we do. For anyone listening to this, there's almost 20 episodes there already, so that is a great place to start. It is an awesome podcast. I so appreciate the two of you making time to do this today. We're going to eat in a minute here, I think. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Peanut butter pancakes. Yes. Thank you Ella Petter, Annie Minoff, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. With the Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>